Hey, this is Ben Mack from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. Welcome to our very special Election Eve uh, live video edition of Max and Murphy. Uh, this is our first time going live, first time doing a video. I'm excited, Ben. You, you look excited too. I'm very excited. I'm excited to be here, but I'm also excited because anytime we're near Election Day, even this year, I get excited. Yep, democracy is exciting. That's what it's and all about. If you're watching this, it means that you obviously are pretty excited too. So we decided to devote this show to talking about 10 things to remember when you go into the voting booth because even in a low wattage election like this, there are interesting things to talk about, think about that should shape your vote or how you think about its significance. Yeah, things to think about as you're going into the voting booth or just as you're watching city politics and the elections unfold, right? right exactly. And we'll be, since this is sort of a post-it approach, we'll be posting our ideas around here and also they'll be part of our online treatment of the video and the audio too and we should mention that we'll return to our typical format on Wednesday with a post-election uh, debriefing podcast. Yeah. podcast. And um, we've got 10 things we're identifying here but if you have others, there's things you think we missed, tweet at us, send us emails, send us hate mail, whatever. Exactly. Uh, yes, we'll be checking boat. online to see folks who posted stuff over the past few days and anything new that's uh, that's coming in. So let's get started. My number one point to remember is that it's going to be a closer race than we think, than the polls suggest. Uh, polls indicate the mayor has a very wide margin. Um, it is very, very, very likely he's going to win. Nothing's certain in politics, but likely he's going to win. But generally in races with a huge margin, the dynamics make it very tough for pollsters to predict. We've seen, not so much last time, but in 2009, a great deal of tightening between polls and the election between Mike Bloomberg and Bill Thompson. And in 2005, something akin to that with uh, Bloomberg and Freddie Ferrer to a lesser degree. So that puts the onus on voters to show up. But don't be surprised if tomorrow night we're talking about, well, I don't know, 20 points instead of 30 points or maybe even a little closer than that. This is something that de Blasio, the mayor, and his campaign have clearly been a little bit concerned about. Turnout, right? I think because from even before the primary, it was sort of like ho-hum election, he's going to coast in the primary and the general, and I think there's a lot of concern among the de Blasio camp about complacency, and he's been reiterating that message out on the stump and saying, hey, remember what happened last year with Donald Trump, and you don't want to take anything for granted, and while this isn't looking as close, you know, they want not only to win, obviously, but they want a good turnout. They want a good margin. And that goes to your first point, which is why do they want a good margin? Yeah, th there's going to be talk about mandate. The mayor talks about he got a mandate in 2013. Is there going to be a mandate this year? I actually took a moment at a press conference the other day to ask him, hey, you talk about mandate from 2013. You got 73% of the vote that year. What's a mandate this time around? Of course, he didn't want to name a number. I knew that would be the answer, but at least I thought I'd get him on record talking about it. He said, I need to get over 50%, you know, I want to get over 50%, um, which he doesn't even need to win considering there's more than two candidates. But, um, you know, it'll be interesting. There's going to be a lot of narrative around the results. That's exactly right. And because the mayor, we have known for a long time that he is likely to win re-election. Most incumbents win re-election. Uh, but he has some big lifts in the second term, whether it's moving toward closing Rikers, dealing with the homeless situation, some of the other kind of big ticket items he's put on the agenda. And, you know, political capital isn't like a formal thing, um, but mandate helps to shape that narrative. You know, turnout and mandate, I think, working together in terms of what kind of an actual uh, imprimatur he puts on his second term. He's got a, a couple uh, last points on this. One, he could be the first Democrat reelected in many, many years and the first to be 
elected without the Republican line in even more decades because I believe Ed Koch, when he got reelected, had the Republican line. So this would be quite an achievement no matter what for a Democrat to be elected, even though, you know, you look at the city voter registration and you might say it's not that big a lift, but it hasn't happened in a long time. But then the other thing here is he's going to be a lame duck if he's reelected, right? You only get two terms, uh, although we've seen that changed. Um, what's his political capital look like? I don't think the narrative from mandate and turnout and margin lasts for that long, but he's going to need sort of everything he can muster to push through his agenda, especially in the first two years of a second term, right. assuming and he wins. And especially if, as people have opined about, speculated about, he has some ambition for something larger. We don't know if that's true or not. We don't know if that's practical or not. But obviously, if he wins a squeaker, Unlikely. If it wins a squeaker, though, as opposed to uh, a landslide, it changes the, the narrative around that as yeah. well. So, so as we look at Election Day and people think about going in to vote, not only in the mayor's race, but in other citywide races, there's some very clear choices here. This is our third thing to yes, think Yes, exactly. I think sometimes people complain about you know establishment candidates being very similar, um, that you can't really, it's Tweedledum and Tweedledee. That's a tough case to make, I think, when it comes to not just the mayor's race. You have you know a Republican in Maliotakis who voted for Trump. You have Bill de Blasio, who is a you know, Bernie Sanders style Democrat by some, you know, mm -hmm. some descriptions and obviously third party candidates who bring very different shades. Um, and that's worth t talking about, too, that there are some interesting third party candidates for Mayor Bo Deedle, Sal Albanese and some of the others that we've talked to. Mm -hmm. um, but in the races for city uh, public advocate, you have Letitia James, the incumbent, who is a progressive Democrat. You have J.C. Polanco, who is a Republican, didn't support Trump, but has some, you know, I think, intelligent, interesting Republican ideas, differences in ideology there. And on the comptroller's race, it's really a difference in, I think one might say, competency and just sort of general approach to government. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there's there's very stark differences between Michael Faulkner, the Republican candidate for comptroller, and Scott Stringer, the incumbent. Um, neither of those races are expected to be close either. Both Faulkner and Polanco, the Republican candidates, have struggled to raise money and build name recognition. Um, I think it's sort of a really clear indication of where this election, the electorate is at, that they're almost in the same position, given that Polanco is much more prepared, much more experienced, much more knowledgeable than Faulkner, and yet their races are kind of similar. And Polanco's even not been able to raise nearly as much money as Faulkner. Um, so yes, there are some very clear choices there. And we should also say, not only in the mayor's race, but those other two citywide races, there are other candidates on the ballot that, that people right. should take a look at if they're still making up their minds. And, and along those same lines, you do have borough president races in each borough. They've got no attention. Uh, it's a job that has changed a lot over the past 30 years, but you know, a job where there is significant power over land use, which is a big issue or significant weight over land use. Um, and seen obviously as a, as a potential stepping stone. Um, in Manhattan, of course, you have a borough-wide race where there is no other candidate on the ballot, but there is this interesting question of whether a writing campaign will succeed in scoring some points against Cy Vance, who has had about the worst possible uh, October, November of an unopposed candidate <laughs> ever. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, for an uncontested, you know, an unopposed candidate on the ballot, he's had a very rough election season. Uh, yes, and there's an announcement today. There were two candidates seeking write-in, uh, a write-in fight against Vance, and uh, one is dropping out and Mark and endorsing Mark Fleedner, who earlier this season ran for Brooklyn DA, but moved into Manhattan to wage this write-in campaign against Vance. Uh, very long odds, but it's something to watch. 
Also to watch here, uh, moving into our fourth thing to think about and watch, uh, if I may, mm -hmm. is uh, some of those city council races. There's the borough president races, there's the DA races that are on the ballot, and then there's some city council races. Most of the interesting city council races were in the Democratic primary in September, but there's a few to watch tomorrow. Uh, I'll start with the District 40 race in Brooklyn. I moderated a debate yesterday between the incumbent Matthew Eugene and his main challenger, Brian Cunningham. Very intense race. Uh, Cunningham has a lot of support from Democrats in the area, even though Eugene won the Democratic primary. Uh, Cunningham has been endorsed by the Working Families Party, but not on their ballot line. That happened too late. Um, so that could be interesting. I kept saying to some people after the debate who support Cunningham, this is probably not gonna happen. A lot of people go to the voting booths and they mm -hmm. just vote down the Democratic line in New York City but I got a lot of pushback about the sort of groundswell in the neighborhood. So that one's interesting. The one most people are watching is District 43 in Southern Brooklyn, Bay Ridge area. That's one where there are Republican representatives in the area like State Senator Marty Golden and one of his aides, John Quaglione, is going against Justin Brannon, the Democrat who has worked for Mayor de Blasio and mostly worked for the outgoing council member Vinnie Gentili. There's a few other council races. I know you've paid attention to mm -hmm. District 1 District 1, in yeah, Lower Manhattan. Manhattan. Manhattan, where uh, Margaret Chin is having a rematch with Christopher Marte, the person who was very close to having 220-some-odd votes in the September primary. Aaron Foldenauer, who ran well behind in the September primary, is already also on as a liberal. And I think there's a Republican candidate, Brian Young, as well. Uh, this is a race between Marte and Chin that's gotten pretty nasty really revolves around questions of development and whether Chin has done enough to resist overdevelopment, to advocate for the full district, talking about the China Working Group, Chinatown Working Group plan, which was a vision for a, a very broad rezoning that was put together after many, many months of work by community groups and kind of um, kicked, kicked down by the Blasio administration, whether she had sufficiently advocated for that. Questions about a lot of development on the sort of two bridges area on the waterfront that's very very high and you know the Chin has advocated against but whether she's been vociferous enough um, a community garden where there's a senior housing project plan so the land use issue is very very heavily uh, involved in, in District One um, and land use or real estate issues come up as well in an interesting race in the Bronx District 13 where Mark Joni who is a real estate broker. Uh, at least at one point a landlord, won the Democratic primary spending more money than anybody has ever in a council race. Over a million dollars. A million yeah, dollars. Unbelievable. Faces not only two of his primary opponents, Marjorie Velasquez and John Doyle on third party lines, but also faces John Serena, a Republican. Um, Serena has a good deal of money in the bank now, or did it last count more than, more than Joe and I did. And this is a district, because it's the East Bronx, covers areas like Throgs Neck, um, it is still majority Democrat, but only about four to one, which by Bronx standards and frankly by standards of much of the city is fairly narrow. So it could be a place where in a low turnout election, um, you see a tighter race. Joe Nye does have tremendous name recognition. He has a van with his face on it. He's an assembly district, member. Assembly yeah, member. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, he, he's running not exactly as an incumbent, but he has some of those um, some of those markings to him. Right. And as you hit on, um, development is sort of this pervasive issue across the city in many city council districts and also in the mayor's race. It's been a key part of the debate around and around de Blasio. So that's obviously um, a big a big theme here. Is there anything else on, on development? Well, you know, it just strikes me that, you know, it, it, it's it's such a um, such a searing issue in so many districts. 
Um, and what's interesting is not only is it an issue that people are, that incumbents are kind of confounded by, but it's fueling not just uh, a clash between Republicans and Democrats, in fact, almost never a clash between them, but it's it's fueling third party movements, right? Mm. You have Brisport in thirty five yeah, talking good one about the armory. Yeah. You have obviously Marte running on the independence line, even though he kinda of disavows the party in the first district. Um, you have um, you know Marjorie Velasquez as working families party against a, a landlord real estate broker in the Bronx. So you know it has the potential, I guess, and we'll have to wait and see what the results look like, to you know, force, I wouldn't say a realignment, but it's a, it's clearly a challenge to, even in New York City, the two-party model we've had, or really one-party model, just because development has become such a multifaceted and controversial issue almost everywhere you go. Yeah, and like I said, it's one of the one of the top two or three issues that are, are discussed about the mayor's record as he seeks re-election. And what's interesting is, just like in many of the city council races, a lot of times it's pushback from further to the left, people who don't want to see more development or concerned about out of context uh, buildings are concerned about gentrification, you name it, concerns about development, whereas the mayor and others say, we got to add more housing supply. This is a way to add affordable housing at the same time. And uh, we have to push forward. Well, that's what's interesting about it, too, is that you do see activism on the left, but there is also a right wing kind of, you know, our conservative anti-development argument, right? It's about the status quo, it's about protecting um, low-density neighborhoods that have a suburban feel. It's, um, you know, sort of resentment of government imposing change on people. Um, so there's Neighborhood that, character. Neighborhood I'll character is a thing, right, yes, uh, sign, running out yes. Here, so cover up Brooklyn <laughs> as much as you can. Um, so yeah, that's I think why it has the potential to um, to unite people on kind of either ends of the spectrum. Folks who feel as though establishment politicians, whether it be they Democrats or Republicans, simply aren't speaking to these issues, and in part that's because, and this obviously has fueled some of the uh, reporting around the mayor and Jonah Recknitz, the idea that developers can kind of buy the results they need from establishment politicians. Yeah. So, moving on, uh, another thing to watch here is that this is, in New York, this is the first election day since Donald Trump was elected last year. Um, there have been some special elections and such, but this is the first real election day one year later uh, since Trump was elected. There's lots of talk both in New York City and around the state about this is Trump's Republican Party and we need Democrats to fight against Trump. And that's a big message from the mayor, but it's also in the Westchester County executive race and a bunch of other races New Jersey where, governor's race. yeah. you know, in, absolutely in the area that this is now about Democrats and the resistance versus Trump. So it's a fascinating storyline to watch. You know, this is one of those things along the same line about mandate and turnout and what does Maliotakis post as a number versus de Blasio um, that will sort of signify a little bit of where we're heading in 2018, which is a much more interesting year in New York and around the country in terms of the, the Trump sure, backlash. The but there's a little bit of, of the seeds here in 2017. And, and how energized are people to come out and vote for Mayor de Blasio? Can someone swing a Westchester County executive mm -hmm. race, mm -hmm. the Nassau County executive? You know, there's, a, there's some races in the area and in this first post-Trump election that I think are pretty interesting. That's true. And this is one reason why, you know, they we rarely have good exit polling in mayoral races, especially in a race that doesn't appear to be close. It wouldn't be worth the investment by news agencies or polling outfits. But it would be fascinating to find out a little more about what's fueling the vote, you know, because you and I and all the other reporters will look at the results on Wednesday morning, Tuesday night, 
and will apply to it, will graft onto it some interpretation of what it might mean. But obviously, you know, a vote is a pretty crude indicator. It could sum up a lot of different sentiment from different voters. I would love to know how big for de Blasio, his argument against Smaliotakis as basically a clone of Trump, a person who voted for Trump, just how powerful that was. Yeah. Um, because, oh, you know, he, he might not even have needed it, uh, but I would be curious to know how many folks are coming out and voting for him because of that. As you mentioned, it's probably more of a let's go out and vote as opposed to vote for me argument, obviously, but um, but uh, you know, unclear what kind of resonance it will have. Yeah, and I, and I, I agree. I'd love to see some more um, exit polling and hopefully we'll get something decent on that. There's, there's the Trump factor in driving out the vote in New York mm -hmm. City or not in the area uh, and across the state. And then there's uh, something else that might be pushing yes. people to vote. The, the con con is... Um, is the most interesting, and this probably is not a high bar, but maybe the most interesting <laughs> ballot question I've, yeah. I've dealt with. Because, and really in terms of, of just questions faced by voters, period, uh, friends of mine, people who would vote for exactly the same candidate in a party primary, diametrically opposed on the CONCON, true disagreements. And it comes down to, I think someone said earlier, a real question of whether your predominant political feeling now is hope mm. for a better future for the state or fear of what could happen if you open this up and people tinker in it. Um, an amazing story of strange bedfellows, you know, all three candidates on the debate stage last week, I believe, saying they were against the, the con, con I believe so, yeah. Or at least Malintakis and de Blasio definitely are. I'm not sure about, about Deedle. I think he said no. Um, and, you know, just fascinating to know how it's going to turn out given the, the way the question's phrased, given the spending by the unions. I've been getting some mail, I don't know about you, from mainly from anti. I'm off the grid. People can't find me. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's the big force is the anti-force. There's been a lot more vote no funding and activity largely because of the labor unions who are worried about um, exposing, exposing pension and other protections to a con-con to a where the state constitution could be rewritten. This will be really interesting to watch the results. I would say that all indications are that this looks like it's going to be a no vote, although it could be close. And I wouldn't be shocked if, if the yes won, because I do think that voters with limited background knowledge or none who go into the voting booth and remember to flip over the ballot right. will be predisposed to a yes because of the climate we're in. Hey, let's shake it up. Let's, right. let's you know, break up uh, the monopoly that the special interests and, and folks have on our politics. And I think you hit an important thing. There are so many, so many potential derailment points for people, right? I mean, they have to, they, first of all, they have to go, go to vote, period. It's going to be low turnout. They have to turn over this thing. And then the question is very long, I think, on the form itself. Well, there's, a, there's, there's the quick question there's that's quick just question, the right. one sentence, and then there's a bit more of explanation. But even right. the question itself is worded in a complicated way. Shall right. there be a constitution to... Uh, a convention to amend, uh, to change the, con it's something right. convoluted. Right, it's obviously, I mean, it's, 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 the whole know. thing is all process yeah. and it's really, so it'd be interesting to see how people uh, come down to that. And obviously there are two other yes. uh, questions as well. The question about whether to uh, empower judges to be able to strip the pensions of public officials elected and some others who are convicted of a corruption charge. And the third question is about a technical change to protection for state forest land, basically to allow upstate towns to be able to rework roads and stuff for necessary infrastructure projects. So Both two and three have a lot of support. There's a few voices no on each. There's actually some interesting arguments against mm -hmm. the pension forfeiture one, but we'll, we can leave that for folks to look up and read. Um, I will say on the CONCON vote, if there's a no, um, that's it for 20 years. <laughs> if there's a yes, 
it triggers a multi-year process that would be absolutely found fascinating to, to be a part of and watch and cover. And so, um, right. that just so has from, elements from, of excitement. From a workload, from workload standpoint, well, we're, there, yeah. We're, yeah, I, I don't know how much more we need on our plates, but it would be very interesting. It would be a fascinating lowercase d democratic exercise and it would have all sorts of interesting elements to it. So, um, other than what, what I think good or bad from it, I'm sort of rooting for it out of excitement and interest and the process. I think it would just be very, very interesting. And I do think there are things that would be great to push through in a con con that the state government just hasn't done, like early voting, for example. But there's a lot of risk to it, so I don't blame people for being against it. So this morning I looked down um, the city council ballots one last time, and I noticed that there are 22 of the 51 districts, if I counted correctly, where either the there is a person who was unopposed, and they're always a Democrat, um, in, in one case, a Democrat who's not even an incumbent in, in uh, Moya, um, and others where there are multiple candidates but no Republican in the race. Um, this conversation comes up now and then, but do you think that this race will have something to say about the state of our sort of number two major party in New York? Yeah, Republicans? so this is one of my other things to watch is, is what are we looking at here in, in New York City and around the state, as I alluded to before, in terms of the, the Republican Party in New York. Um, Nicole Maliotakis as the sort of standard bearer for the New York City and even larger New York GOP here has acquitted herself fairly well. She's really hardworking. She's sharp in a number of ways. She's young. You know, she's got already some experience in the legislature and looks like she might have a bright future ahead of her. Um, if she wins, she'll obviously have a very bright future as the as the mayor. But um, but. So that's been interesting. She hasn't run a great campaign. We'll talk about that another time. But um, what you know, the city council races. I don't expect there to always be strong Republican challengers. I would expect there to be in certain districts, and mm -hmm. that's been medium. What happens around the rest of the state? We'll see. I mean, some of these, like I said before, these county executive races are very important to the GOP, like Rob Astorino keeping his seat in Westchester County. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see. I think that's something that we'll be taking stock of as the results come in and, and wondering, just looking ahead to further elections, you know, where will the Republican presence in New York City be? Uh, it's obviously much stronger outside the city. And interesting, we talked earlier about the citywide races. Besides the mayor's race, you have a public advocate race where you have Republican J.C. Polanco, who frankly is a pretty attractive, compelling candidate, a guy who quits himself well, has received very little support that we can detect anyway from the party establishing party apparatus. In the comptroller's race, you have Michael, uh, Michael Faulkner, who is... Um, you know, a, a charismatic guy, but clearly in the debate with Scott Stringer, really just not up on his homework in terms of the position, has a strange idea of how we're going to correct the imbalance of how we pay too much to the feds and taxes. Mm -hmm. um, interesting that the Republican Party for a citywide post like that would not have a better process for finding a candidate who would just acquit himself a little bit better. Yeah, the, you know, the candidate in 2013, John Burnett, was was much more steeped in financial acumen and some of the things that the controller has to deal with, but he didn't go anywhere either. It's very hard. You know, a Republican candidate citywide in New York, people pay attention to the mayoral candidate to some degree. And then for controller and public advocates, very hard. But that is indicative of the strength of the party. The fact that because J.C. Polanco has been critical of Trump, he's not getting much support from the party, which is what a number of people, including Polanco, say is, is sad considering he is a strong candidate. So those are uh, fascinating dynamics. So you've said already that 2018 kind of looms in the background because of the Trump effect. 
uh, to what extent is 2021 on the ballot? Tomorrow? I mean, 2021 is maybe is partly on the ballot, and it begins the day after election day, uh, November 8th. 2021, the mayoral race. I'm excited about it already. Um, you know, this is going to have <laughs> makes, shades of 2013. Of yeah, yeah, well, you know, I'm a junkie. But, <laughs> but um, Comptroller, Comptroller Scott Stringer, Public Advocate Letitia James, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, Bronx Borough President Ruben Diaz Jr. These are four elected officials just about assured of re-election this year, and all will be term limited out of their posts after the next term, and all four are almost certain to run for mayor, and even just those four would create a fascinating Democratic primary that would be a lot of fun and very interesting. Um, so they're all about to be reelected, very likely, and then we watch the 2020 mayoral, 2021 mayoral race begin. Right, which is not just an obsession for political junkies and reporters like us, but obviously it, it is probably going to have some impact on governing, as you said right away. And you know, you mentioned, I think, earlier the council races, how those might impact selection of the next speaker, which yes. will have a huge effect on how effective, assuming he is uh, re-elected, de Blasio is in his second term. But seeing how James and Stringer and the borough presidents you mentioned interact, how they deal with de Blasio in his second term, choosing alliances, choosing to make difference, a distance. Um, that's going to be interesting to watch, and it's going to have an effect on the policy conversation. And people can start paying attention to not only how they run their offices and approach their jobs, but what do they believe in, and who do they seem to be, and what kind of leaders are they, and all sorts of things like that. Totally. Uh, are they playing politics with their positions, as we've already seen a little bit of, for sure, from some of those four. Um, and then we shouldn't discount the fact that there's Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer, there's Queensborough President Melinda Katz, Staten Island Borough President James Otto. These are other officials that could be in the 2020 mix, 2021 mix, mm -hmm. either for mayor or um, public advocate or controller. Right. Um, and then and we I have think... Melissa Mark Viverito. Uh, the fun never ends. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, <laughs> we're coming to the end of the fun of this show, so I want to mention that um, there certainly is no excuse for any voter to feel as though there's not sufficient information for them out this year between the voter's guide that we worked on, the digital voter's guide, interactive guide with WNYC, Gotham Gazette and City Limits, which is on all three of our websites. Yep. We have a lot of stories. We have a lot of lists of candidates with links to their Facebook and their their campaign websites. So there really are no excuses. Yeah, no excuses. Says, for, for not voting, or at least for not feeling you're an informed voter, because there's, there's information out there that tells you enough to make the choices you have to make tomorrow. And there's, yeah, there's time to cram if you're watching right now and if you're listening. Uh, there's time to cram for sure and to at least glance around the voter's guide with WMIC that we that we created all together. And of course, um, we've done some deep dives on the mayor's record, variety of city council races. Um, you guys at City Limits did a story on that debate I mentioned that I moderated yesterday in Brooklyn. So there's lots of resources out there. As you said, no no excuses not to vote and not to be a, at least somewhat informed voter. Well, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, we hope you'll uh, vote tomorrow and look for the stuff we'll have on our respective websites. And then listen again on Wednesday to Max and Murphy, the podcast, looking back on election 2017 and looking forward to God knows what. Lots of fun. <laughs> thanks for having us.